This is case four from the Mumak. The barbarian has no beard. The case. Master Watwan said, Why has the Western barbarian no beard? Mumak's commentary. If you practice Zen, you must actually practice it. If you become enlightened, it must be the real experience of enlightenment. You see this barbarian once face to face, then for the first time you will be able to acknowledge him. But if you say that you see him face to face, in that instant there is division into two. The verse. In front of a fool, do not talk about dreams. The barbarian has no beard. This is adding obscurity to clarity. So we have a couple of uh, beginners today with us. Welcome. Welcome to a place where everyone is a beginner. And sometimes we need people like you who come in and remind us that we're all beginners. So thank you for that. Tatios or Dharma talks are often based on a koan, such as this one. Koans are a big part of, important part of Zen practice. Some of them are long, many details, easy to get lost in. Some are short, like this short, terse, sharp to the point. So short that we don't even know we are completely lost. There's a lot of power hidden, or hidden at first, in such a question. Why? Does he have no beard? In ancient China, all non-Chinese and even Chinese living in the southwest frontier were called Hu or barbarians. And in this case, the Western barbarian is referring to Bodhidharma, who was the first patriarch of Zen, came to China from India. He was quite old at that time. And in all statues and, and drawings of Bodhidharma, he appears with a big and bushy beard, covering his entire face. And Wakwan, Chinese Zen master from the 12th century, took this well-known fact and made a koan of it by asking us, why has the Western barbarian no beard? 
He's turning everything upside down. And then, then he dares to ask us, why is it not right side up? Why is it upside down? Is it because he's asking? What do you see here in this question? How do you work with it? This question appears twice in, on the journey of practice for formal students. First time you encounter this in the miscellaneous class. And then again, the first book we study. And each time you encounter that, you are expected to deal with it in a different way. different level, different depth. And even the second time you encounter it, still, there may be a glimpse, but the heart of Zen lies here, in this question. It's a strange journey, this life we're on in we go from not knowing to knowing and then through practice we find our way back to not knowing so we can go back to the known and function free. And we come into this world from being enveloped by the darkness witness and silence of a warm womb where all our basic needs are met. And we float around in a gapless reality where the body fits perfectly in a liquid that fills all crevices. No gap, no pondering, no comparisons, no knowledge. And it works seamlessly because there is no God. And then from this perfectly gapless existence, we enter a reality that seems to be in complete contrast with the world we come from. We enter a cold room, bright lights, unfamiliar sounds, moving objects, lack of constant support, and gaps, lots of gaps. Gaps between sounds and sights, between different sensations, between feeling safe and unsafe. But at this point, there is not yet a developed condition or Cognition has not yet been developed to do anything about it or to judge it. So the experiences are not defined. And instead of filling the gaps with labels and connotations, we allow them to 
connect the different experiences to a unified reality. And we don't even know we're doing at that point. It just happens. There is still the wisdom of gapless reality, of the womb. And then, little by little, we grow up. And our natural sense of wonder and exploration begins to narrow down to names, definitions, hierarchy, time segments. Time segments where the gaps start to appear more as dividing rather than as unifying. From comparing and competing over toys, we go on to comparing and competing over our possessions. Kids, our kids are a big part of it, of course. Our jobs, income, education, looks, achievements. And somewhere along the line, we begin to believe that our value as human beings actually fluctuates based on these comparisons. We forget. We forget that we come from the seamless and the gapless. We forget who we are. And from these growing gaps, from these growing gaps, an alternate reality is born. A storyline is perpetuated. And an image of a separate identity is formed. And since this identity is no more than an imagined self, it can live and function only through what is assigned to it. Or in other words, through attachments. So yes, my name is Junior, 53 years old. I live in New Jersey. Father, husband, Akita teacher, Zen priest, Roshi. And to this you can add memories of the past, aspirations for the future, likes, dislikes, and a lot of small details that fill in the gaps, the space, the vastness. And all these details create an illusion, the illusion of a fixed self on the backdrop of constantly changing reality. Of course, the attention goes to that. Is it real? Are the names real? Age, face, the looks. Is what we want to achieve real? Is where we are real? Recently, I watched again the movie A Beautiful Mind, which I saw for the first time about 60 years ago when it came out. And Yogi never saw it, so we watched it together. And the movie is a biography of, maybe some of you have seen it, of uh, John Nash, famous mathematician who won the 
Nobel Peace, Nobel Prize for Economic Science. And throughout his life, he struggled with schizophrenia, and the movie portrays two separate and parallel realities that keep clashing with one another. So it goes throughout his life, and the first reality of what is really happening, and alongside the reality of his mind, of what he sees, imagine reality. And the movie actually is done very well. At the beginning, you don't even know that some of the characters are not real. Everything blends in so beautifully. And at some point, you begin to recognize and realize that it's not quite real. Some of it is, and some of it is made up for us as viewers, but not for him as the one who is experiencing. And at some point, it's as if the camera steps into his mind, so to speak. And then you begin to see that it's not exactly so. You begin to recognize there are two different realities here. start to see that he's actually talking, interacting with himself. And things get very dicey, begin to go downhill, he goes in and out of mental institutions and treatments, and almost loses his wife and child. That there were three main characters interlaced throughout his life, in this alternate reality. A friend from Princeton University, a CIA recruiter who he thinks recruited him to work for, and a little girl. And at some point in the movie, just before things completely fall apart, there's a major turning point, breakthrough. He realizes that while the years go by, the little girl never grows up. He begins to see the difference between the imagined and the real. And he begins to take responsibility for choosing to live in the real. So there was a point that he actually takes the time to say goodbye to each of the characters. He turns to each of them and says, from this point on, I will no longer interact with you, communicate with you. It is actually a goodbye that comes out of a decision, comes out of a realization. Actually, the little girl starts to cry. He feels sad because those were characters that 
shared his life up to that point. And then, although he completely ignores them from that point, they actually don't go away. They stick around. They look at him. They keep trying to get his attention. Trying to have him interact with them again. Does this sound familiar? For us practitioners, like the thoughts, this feeling the blank and form a separate sense of reality. As long as we interact with them, they are kept alive. And the line between what is imagined and what is real becomes blurred. But when we realize, we realize that the imagined is actually lifeless, repetitive, static, and disconnected from reality, we begin to direct our attention away from it then become less identified with the static details. How many times we find ourselves repeating the same old words, sometimes silently, sometimes locally, to ourselves or to others. We find ourselves creating the same scenarios over and over again, getting stuck in them. I realized, what was that? That was nothing. That's how it shows up. The lifeless, the imagined. That's what we have to say goodbye to. And it's scary. And maybe sad, too. But there is no other way. And even when you do say goodbye, like the characters in the case of John Nash, the thoughts and emotions that create our matter reality also linger, hoping we will again identify with them, again cherish them, again obey their impulsive energies. In this con, Master Wakwan is asking, why? Why does Bodhidharma have no being? But what he's really asking us is why do you have no name, no family, no face, no job, no car, no house, or anything, anything you have become attached to? Or anything that has become attached to your sense of self over the He's not telling you you don't have it. He's asking why don't you have it? Which is not a question that is gingerly approaching. It goes to the heart of it. Not simply because he doesn't want you to waste time. Waste your life. In the Hot Sutra, which I chanted this morning, no eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind. 
And then in the Sandakai, we chanted, I see, ears hear, no smell, tongue, taste. So which is it? Do we have or have not? Eyes, ears, nose. What is this? This protrusion. We call a nose. What is it really? And that's that's a barrel we have to go through. And the corn, the power of this corn is hidden in this barrel. And on the road to true freedom, we must cut through to the heart of the matter and reconcile this seeming dichotomy. And this is where real Zen practice comes to life, as it directs your attention to the root cause of the malady we are dealing with as human beings. You know, we work with the symptoms of this disease often, we, we tweak the behavior, maneuver around obstacles, and it works for a little while. Actually, it does create some sense of accomplishment. I'm getting somewhere. I feel a little bit better. But it doesn't last. As long as the root cause is not addressed, None of it's going to be more than a temporary fix. And if you're an honest practitioner, you know that. You know that the characters, the other characters, are calling and we answer. Because it's familiar. Because they're all a part of our elaborate storyline because we have this temptation to go out and play. And we don't learn. We do, but it takes us time. So we don't learn right away. And we go, we experience the pain again and again. We come out of it and we go back. Yasutani yeah, Roshi was a teacher in our lineage. There's a picture of him on the wall if you want to look at it later in the corner. He said, It is truly it is the truly blind, the truly deaf, who is the master within the barriers. The master within the barriers has neither eyes nor ears, but he uses eyes and ears to see and hear with complete freedom. No matter how wondrous the things you show him, no matter what terrible thing you show him, he does not see it at all. It doesn't bother him, no matter what obtruse philosophy you may expound to him, no matter what unusual doctrine you may preach to him, he does not hear a word, and he does not offer a word of negation. The only way, the only way to truly see is to forget the eye when see. And the only way to truly hear is to forget the ear when hear. 
free is to recognize that there is no real hindrance, no shadows, no obstacles. Of course, it doesn't mean we don't encounter challenges. Only that the challenges we face are not covering Because it's gapless. Always has been, always will be gapless. The gaps are imagined. But because we can't seem to tolerate the gaps, we fill them in with lots of details, many thoughts, which steal our attention. When Bodhidharma came to China, he met with Emperor Wu, who asked him, Who are you? Are you this meditation master from India people talk about? Are you just an ordinary person? Bodhidharma said, I don't know. Later, after Bodhidharma left, the emperor brought this up, this dialogue up with Master Qin and asked him about it. Master Qin asked, does your majesty know who this man is? And the emperor said, I don't know. So Bodhidharma said, I don't know. And emperor also said, I don't know. Both gave the same answer. And both dealt with the question they were faced in a genuine and most fitting way. Yet, Bodhidharma's answer seems to come out of the deep and the spiritual. And Wu's answer seems to come out of the mundane and the ordinary. And merging this dichotomy is actually similar to merging the dichotomy of having and not having. Being and not being, knowing or not knowing. Light and darkness are a pair, like the foot before and the foot behind him walking. Where is the gap? This is what we have to work through. This is why. That koan, or such a koan, is powerful, has the power to cut through, because it directs you to the heart of the matter, because it leaves you nothing to hold on to. It is asking you, it is asking us to. Put aside the imagined. Put aside. Don't reject. Just let it be for a while. And be what is real. Don't look at what is real. Be that.
Pirapuri. Chiliano says, needless to say, Zen is totally different from intellectual methods aiming at getting at theoretical or conceptual conclusions. It lives in quite another dimension. Zen asks us to transcend dualism, to attain no mind. If Zen is only philosophically interpreted, it remains an idea and a concept. When one personally experiences the truth of Zen and testifies to it, his training is real training, and his satori is real satori. A part of this very person, this I, there can be no Zen. There is nothing else. Maybe that's the truth we have a problem with. Because we think that there is something else. This is absolutely it. In the most gapless, spaceless, It is spacious, but there is no, there are no spaces to cover anything up, to hinder anything. There are no spaces that need to be filled with thoughts, emotions, ideas, concepts. And it's kind of sometimes feels stuck because we don't know how to deal with it, how to work with it. We want to go somewhere else to work with it. There's a line that says, there's only one road. Advance and you fall into a pit. Retreat and a ferocious tiger will bite your leg. And that's what happens we, when we try to go somewhere else, when we try to conceptualize, even if it's realization or glimpse of it. The moment we conceptualize it, we fall into a pit. The verse says, in front of a fool, do not talk about dreams. The barbarian has no beard. This is adding obscurity to clarity, or another translation says it's adding stupidity to clarity. And this is where it gets, it can get tricky because raising it up is already adding obscurity to clarity. Asking the question, if he has or has no beard, if you have or have not, he's already messing things up. Because the question comes out of a gap. If there is no gap, there's no question. 
finished with quote by Ralph Waldo Emerson. Let a man learn to look for the permanent, in the mutable and fleeting. Let him learn to bear the disappearance of things he had reverence for, without losing his reverence. Let him learn that he is here, not to work, but to be worked upon, and that, though abyss open under abyss, and opinion displays opinion, are all at last contained in the eternal cause.